This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 1, The Achaemenid Empire, Part 1. Persia, the country that we now call Iran. Historically, Iran is the area of the world that separates Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley. The name Iran has been mentioned before when speaking of the Indo-Iranians, which is a linguistic branch of the Indo-European languages. Indo-Iranians are synonymous with the term Aryans. Iranian and Aryan sound similar, but this is because they are likely to be cognate words, which refer to a similar thing. The word Persian is in fact the foreign word, possibly first coined by people of Greek lands. We do, however, need to look at the geography and history of these lands before the arrival of Indo-European language speakers so we can make reference back to the stories of Volume 2 of this podcast for our clues. Firstly, let us acknowledge the importance of Mesopotamia, the land between the two rivers, the Euphrates and the Tigris. Mesopotamia would extend from the banks of the Persian Gulf, going northwest, following the lines of the rivers up to the Taurus mountain range. During the Bronze Age, to the west of Mesopotamia, were the dry lands occupied by nomadic cultures. To the east, the Zagros Mountains and the Iranian Plateau. These lands were a place of trade links across to the Indus Valley Civilization to the east of the Iranian Plateau. So it would be sensible to find out who was occupying these lands in ancient times so that we can track its history and lead ourselves into the period which is historically referred to as the First Persian Empire. We can look for clues within the podcast episodes of Volume 2, so let's travel back in time to the 3rd millennium BCE, which is a time of Sumerians and Akkadians. In the modern world, the Mesopotamian region around the Persian Gulf is in the modern country of Iraq. As you travel along the Persian Gulf coast, you cross the border from Iraq into Iran, and this can represent an ancient world move from Sumer to Elam. So the lands of the Elamites are very important in the story of the history of the country of Iran. It is difficult to see the early Elamites as much more than a pestilence to the Sumerians initially, but this is purely because written records and artefacts in Sumer are abundant in comparison to Elam. So many stories are told from a Sumerian perspective. The Elamites were very much a part of Sumerian politics, 
with Elamite dynasties gaining influence over pockets of southern Mesopotamia and vice versa. We may know more about the Elamites from their own perspective if the attempts of the Akkadian Empire to make Elam into an Akkadian-speaking land were successful, as they were with so many other lands of Mesopotamia. The Elamites ultimately repulsed the Akkadians, their language and the Sumerian cuneiform style of writing. However, another group of peoples who resided in the Iranian lands of the Zagros Mountains were the Gutians. The Gutians occupied lands directly north of the Elamites, who were on the northeastern coast of the Persian Gulf. The Gutians would actually take advantage of a weakness in the late Akkadian Empire and move into Sumerian lands following the Akkadian demise. So here we see a period of dominance by people of future Iranian lands. After the Gutians were run out of Sumer by the resident Sumerians, making way for the Neo-Sumerians, it would actually be the Elamites who would sack the city of Ur to put an end to the Neo-Sumerian period. So here we see again that people of Iranian lands to the east were highly influential over Sumerian politics and history. Another culture which is believed to have emerged in the lands of the Zagros Mountains are the Kassites, whose story belongs in the 2nd millennium BCE. The Kassites showed an interest in the lands of Babylonia after the lifetime of the great Babylonian king Hammurabi. The Babylonians managed to repel the Kassites initially, but it would be after an attack by the Hittites that the Kassites would move into and rule over Babylonia. For the Hittites to venture so far down the Euphrates, you have to wonder whether the Kassites approached the Hittites to ask for their assistance in sacking the city of Babylon. Although there is no evidence of such an approach and the alternative view is that the Hittites sacked Babylon in a smash-and-grab style, leaving Babylonia at the mercy of migrating Kassites in the aftermath. The Kassites would be in control of Babylonia for well over 400 years. The demise of Kassite Babylonia was brought about by the aggressive nature of their neighbours, the Assyrians, to their north, who were constantly trying to dominate their Kassite neighbours. It was the Elamites who would deal the killer blow to Kassite Babylonia by taking the last Kassite Babylonian king back to the Elamite city of Susa. It is clear from all of this information that on many occasions the peoples of the modern Iranian lands were a strong influence over the politics of the Near East, particularly Mesopotamia. It was after this time that the Assyrians would extend their influence of the Near East and become the biggest empire that the world had ever seen. What remained of the Kassites headed back towards the lands of the Zagros Mountains, where it is thought that they originated from. To their south were the Elamites, but to their north was a culture called 
the Manians. Manian settlements have been found in the northwest of modern Iran, demonstrating an advanced sedentary lifestyle. However, they were unable to compete with the huge and powerful Assyrian Empire to their west. The Manian lands would ultimately come under the control of the Medes, who were a very important part of our story of the Assyrian Empire, which we followed closely in episode 7 of volume 2. At its peak, the Assyrian Empire would encroach on the lands of the Medes, and it would sack the Elamite city of Susa. So the Assyrians were the bosses of the Near East, but this situation could not last. The Assyrians were being challenged on many different fronts. The Babylonians were gaining control of their southern Mesopotamian lands. The Medes, under the rule of their king Cyaxares, would make a pact with the Scythians and the Cimmerians to push the Assyrians back from their own north and east. The defining event of Median history has to be the Battle of Nineveh in 612 BCE. The unlikely alliance of the Medes and the Babylonians pushed the Assyrians back to their contemporary capital city of Nineveh, forcing the Assyrians into a major defensive position. Very suddenly, the biggest empire seen on planet Earth, the Assyrians, were fighting for their very own survival. The Medians were already responsible for sacking the traditional Assyrian capital city of Ashur, just two years earlier. The Babylonians and the Medes would hold the capital city of Nineveh under siege for a number of months while the Assyrians bravely defended their city. However, the Allied army would breach the city walls, kill the Assyrian king and sack the city of Nineveh, causing the last remnants of the Assyrian elite to flee their capital city. Ultimately, the Babylonians would take control of all of the Assyrian lands south of Mesopotamia, including the Levant. The Assyrians were gone. Even though the Babylonians had taken such vast swathes of land following a campaign which would have unlikely been successful without the Medes, the Medes were already creating their own empire. They had taken control of the lands of the Elamites, which were likely in a weakened condition thanks to the aggression of the Assyrians in years gone by. The fall of the Assyrian Empire was caused by an alliance of the Babylonians and the Medes, but they were supported by the Scythians and the Cimmerians, who had been attacking Assyrian-occupied Euratian lands in the north of the Assyrian Empire and the Chaldeans of the Babylonian lands, as well as the Persians of the Median lands. Now, these Persians were a people based in former Elamite lands to the south of the land surrounding the traditional Elamite capital city of Susa. So we now need to find out exactly who these people are, and how they just mysteriously appeared on our map. 
because we know that they will become a huge part of the history of the world. It is difficult to ascertain the exact origins of the Persians, but due to their language being an Indo-European language, we can determine that the Persian migration into the lands of modern Iran came from the north as part of the Indo-Iranian branch of Indo-European languages. This is linked to the same branch of Indo-Iranians from which we received the Aryan migration into the lands of modern India that would write the Vedas in the ancient Sanskrit language. The Persians are referred to as nomadic, although that is probably an assumption, but they ultimately settled the lands around the city of Anshan, which was historically in the southern portion of the Elamite lands. We know that the Persians were here during the 7th century BCE, and we know that they were subject to, and a part of, the Median Empire. Cyaxares was the Median king when the Assyrian Empire was crushed. Cyaxares had successfully avenged the death of his father, Phraortes, who was defeated and killed by the great Assyrian king Ashurbanipal. After Ashurbanipal's death, his son, Sinsharishkan, would become the king of a fragile Assyrian Empire. Cyaxares would avenge his father's death by causing Sinsarishkan to lose his capital city and possibly his life at the Battle of Nineveh in 612 BCE. The Medians under Cyaxares would subjugate the territory of Anshan, which was the heartland of the Persians, before extending their influence westwards, conquering the lands of the Uratu, and heading further west to the lands of the Lydians in Anatolia. To the south, the Babylonians were consolidating their own empire throughout Mesopotamia and the Levant. The Medians and the Lydians would clash, but the result would be a stalemate, and neither party would gain ground on each other. Cyaxares died in 585 BCE and was succeeded by his son Astyages. Meanwhile, in the territory of Anshan, which as we mentioned before was the homeland of the Persian people, the chief ruler was a man called Cambyses. Although the territory of Anshan and Cambyses were both subject to their overlord, King Astyages of Media. The relationship appeared to be a healthy one, with Astyages allowing Cambyses to be married to his daughter, Mandani of Media. This marriage would produce one of the most important figures in Persian history, as Cambyses and Mandani would parent a child called Cyrus. Cyrus II of Anshan So let's recap. From the beginning 
of the 7th century BCE, the Assyrian Empire dominated the Near East. While the Assyrians were dominating, a movement of Indo-European language speakers migrated to the lands of southern Elam, forming the city-state of Anshan. The Median Empire would grow to the north of Anshan and Elam, and to the east of Assyria. At the end of the 7th century BCE, the Babylonians would regain sovereignty from the Assyrians and would rise up against them alongside the Medes. This would spell the end of the Assyrian Empire. The Persian city-state of Anshan would come under the influence of the Medes and the Medes would conquer the lands of the Euratians before reaching the Lydian kingdom of Anatolia in the west while the Babylonians would rule over Mesopotamia and the Levant. The local ruler of Anshan was Cambyses and Cambyses had a young son called Cyrus. When it comes to the stories of Cyrus's childhood, we only really have the historical accounts of the Greek 5th century BCE historian Herodotus. We won't dwell on this too much as it involves tales of child swapping and deception with Cyrus growing up within a family of a shepherd. It comes across a bit far-fetched, but we don't have anything to challenge it. We also have to accept that King Astyages of the Medes was the maternal grandfather of Cyrus, although some scholars doubt this. When Cyrus came of age, he would go on campaign with his father Cambyses to the Battle of the Persian Border, a battle penned by the historian Nicholas of Damascus, who was alive 500 years after this period, but interestingly not mentioned by Herodotus. It may be that Cambyses suffered lethal injuries during this battle, which would lead to Cyrus becoming the king of the Persians in his father's place. The Persian campaigns against their former overlords, the Medes, continued and many local rulers and military leaders defected from King Astyages of the Medes to King Cyrus of Persia. Cyrus would go on to defeat Astyages at the Battle of Persagadi in around the year 550 BCE. And now the Median Empire would be a vassal of the Persians in a turnaround of power. So let's be completely clear on what has happened here. Over the course of the previous few centuries, Iranians had moved southwards and settled the former southern Elamite lands of Anshan. The Medes would subjugate Anshan as a vassal state of its vast Median Empire before Anshan, under the rule of King Cyrus, would rise up against and ultimately defeat and take control of the Median Empire. We refer to Cyrus and his Iranian race as the Persians, and the Persian rulers traced their ancestry back to an individual called Achaemenes, which is why we call this the dawn of the Achaemenid Empire under its first ruler, Cyrus the Great. Once again though, we find that ancient societies 
are labelled with Greek names, especially in the English-speaking world. Achaemenes is the Greek version of the name Hakamanish, and Cyrus is the Greek version of the name Karish. Even the name Persia is an exonym, and an exonym is a name that has been created by a foreign race. So to say that Cyrus the Great was the king of the Achaemenid Persians might be a westernised version of saying that Karish was the king of the Hakamanish Iranians. It is worth pointing out that the Achaemenids were just one of many Persian tribes who would ultimately coalesce under Cyrus's rule. However, we will carry on with the Greek names for no other reason than to maintain a comprehensiveness about the podcast. So we will now explore what Cyrus did after he had conquered and taken over the Median Empire. Cyrus was hungry for more power and the next kingdom on his list was Lydia in Anatolia. Lydia had previously defied the advances of the Medes under Cyrus's great-grandfather, King Cyaxares. This time, it would be Cyrus himself with his confederation of Persian tribes and Median remnants who would be challenging the Lydians. However, the Lydians under their own king Croesus were prepared for this challenge and they knew that it would be a formidable challenge as they formed alliances with the Egyptians and the Babylonians. Initially, it would look like a similar situation to when the Medes had challenged the Lydians and the result was a bit of a stalemate. After some initial and inconclusive conflicts, Cyrus and the Achaemenids pursued Croesus and the Lydians deep into Lydian territory and engaged them in conflict at the Battle of Thimbra in 547 BCE. Croesus and the Lydians would retreat back within the confines of the city of Sardis, which Cyrus besieged for two weeks before the city fell and Croesus was captured. This would mark the end of the Lydian kingdom which had emerged from the remnants of the Hittite empire a few centuries previous. The Achaemenids now had control of Anatolia. Now, if you recall, after the fall of the Assyrian Empire, the lands of the former Assyria were split between two empires, with the Median Empire to the north and the Babylonian Empire to the south. The period that followed has already been mentioned during Volume 2 of this podcast, and specifically during Episode 10 on the ancient religion of Canaan and Phoenicia. As Assyria was falling, this would have dire consequences for the Egyptians who would be helpless in watching the fall of their only Near East ally at the time. The Egyptian pharaoh, Necho II, would lead an Egyptian army to Carchemish to stand alongside the remnants of the Assyrian army against the Babylonians, led by their king Nebuchadnezzar II in 605 BCE at the Battle of Carchemish. But the Babylonians would see off the Egyptians sending them back to Africa. In the aftermath, the Babylonians would annex the ancient kingdom of Judah and its capital city of Jerusalem, a city which would rebel against their new rulers 
by delaying their tribute payments. As a result, King Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylonia would deport the Jewish people of Jerusalem to Babylonia after plundering Jerusalem and destroying the sacred Solomon's Temple during the siege of Jerusalem in 587 BCE. The feelings of the deported Jews in Babylonia are captured in Psalm 137 of the Hebrew Bible. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Also, we wept at our remembrance of Zion. On the willows, in the midst thereof, we hung up our lyres. From there, our captors demanded a song and our desecrators mirth. Sing us from the song of Zion. How can we sing the song of God on strange land? Zion is another name for the lands of Jerusalem, the lands that the Jewish people call their home, and the sacred land that the Jewish people yearned to return to. The words of this particular psalm have resonated through the ages with seemingly countless musical renditions over the course of modern history. One of the most well-known in pop culture was the version recorded by the Euro-Caribbean pop music group Boney M, released in 1978. The Babylonian captivity of the Jewish people would continue until the Jewish people were freed, and they were freed by none other than the hero of today's episode, Cyrus the Great. After Cyrus's successful conquest of Lydia, he would turn his attention south towards the Babylonian Empire. Firstly, Cyrus would need to secure those northern Elamite lands centred around their capital city of Susa in 540 BCE. This would bring Cyrus to the doorstep of the Mesopotamian lands of the Babylonians, now under the rule of King Nabonidus. Cyrus would be able to strike the Babylonians in the following year, engaging them in battle at the Battle of Opis. The Babylonians were no match for Cyrus's mighty Achaemenid Persians, and the Babylonians would crumble in defeat, allowing Cyrus to march into Babylon and be proclaimed the new king. The Babylonian Empire would now become a part of the Achaemenid Empire, which would include Jerusalem. Those captive Jews who wished to return to Jerusalem would be allowed to do so, where they would begin construction of a new temple to replace the one that the Babylonians had previously destroyed. Not all Jews would return to Jerusalem, and those who would not return would be the ancestors of the more modern Iraqi Jews. Historians cite the Babylonian conquest by Cyrus the Great as a good thing. The Babylonians have been portrayed as the bad guys in this episode in history with their apparent bullying of the Jews. However, the kingdom of Judah 
did have a reputation for being a stubborn people who would resist the imperious attitudes of the Babylonians and the Assyrians before them. Whatever your opinion is, it does appear that Cyrus would allow the Jewish people the freedom to live their lives wherever and however they pleased. The kingdom of Judah was a relatively small part of Cyrus's imperial ambitions. One other important expansion of Cyrus the Great's reign, which can sometimes be overlooked, is the eastward expansion. With all the glory of victory over the Medes, the Lydians and the Babylonians, we should not neglect Cyrus's success in extending his influence over the lands right up to the Indus Valley. This would be the first time that the Indus Valley would be linked to Mesopotamia within the same empire. It is possible that Cyrus would attempt to campaign northwards towards the Kazakh steppe where he would meet a Scythian people called the Masagetae. Herodotus, the Greek historian, is quite fair in his assessment that there are multiple theories. But it is during conflict with the Masagetae that we suggest that Cyrus the Great met with his death. Cambyses II Now, if we look back into Volume 2 of the podcast, we did visit ancient Egypt during this particular period in Episode 19. Cyrus's son and heir, Cambyses II, was reported by Herodotus to have a political relationship with the Egyptian pharaoh, Amasis II. Now, you can make up your own mind about whether Herodotus is correct about the relationship between Achaemenid Persia and Egypt becoming strained, causing Cambyses II to consider an invasion of Egypt. Another train of thought would be that Cambyses was simply continuing his father's amazing work of imperial expansion of the Achaemenid Empire. It would be after the death of the Egyptian pharaoh Amasis II that his son would become pharaoh Samtik III and quickly into his reign he would have his hands full as Cambyses II would lead an Achaemenid army into Egyptian lands. Not just with the intention to battle but with the intention of ultimate conquest. The two armies would meet at the Battle of Pelusium in 525 BCE where the Achaemenids would be so successful that the Egyptians were sent fleeing back to Memphis. The Achaemenids would put Memphis under siege and ultimately the pressure would become too much for the Egyptians who would succumb to the overwhelming might of the Achaemenids. Pharaoh Samtik III was captured and possibly allowed to commit suicide. Egypt would be annexed and become a part of the huge Achaemenid Empire and Cambyses II would become the new pharaoh of Egypt. It would also be in the same year that the Achaemenids would subjugate the island of Cyprus and Cambyses would also consolidate his Egyptian kingdom 
However, he would soon have to head back to his heartland, which is unsurprising considering the sheer size of the empire. On his way back from Egypt to Persia in 522 BCE, Cambyses II sustained a wound to his thigh which would become gangrenous. This would result in Cambyses' untimely death before he could get back to Persia. The loss of a powerful monarch could be extremely dangerous for a large empire such as the Achaemenid Empire at this time. And with Cambyses passing at a relatively young age with no heir, it would come down to his brother, Bardia, to take control of the empire. The accounts of this period differ according to whose histories you choose to read. Some claim that Cambyses killed his brother before his own death and that Bardia was not actually Bardia, but was an imposter. Whoever Bardia was, and however far-fetched these stories are, we can somewhat assume that Bardia's rapid overthrow by his own people was the end of this dynastic line. It is possible that the empire would then have no ruler, but that a group of elites would discuss how the Achaemenid Empire would proceed and under whose rule. It may be that during this period, one man rose up among all others and took his place at the head of the Achaemenid Empire. And his name was Darius. And there you have it. Episode 1 of the Volume 3. Now... We have to wait until next week to pick up this story again about Darius, but at least now we have a good introduction into how the Persian empires started out, and we've heard the story of Cyrus the Great. So, we're underway. Volume 3, quite highly anticipated. I've had a lot of exchanges with people saying to me how excited they are about the beginning of Volume 3. What did you think of it? Let me know your thoughts. Uh, Was it everything you expected it to be or were you any were you disappointed at all was there a part of it that you thought you was uh, expecting that you didn't hear let me know now for anyone that hasn't listened before this is the part of the podcast where we wrap up the week's news surrounding the podcast and thank all those people who have helped to make the podcast possible of course no more so than our patreons so thank you to all the patreons who uh, contribute towards the financial costs of running the History of the World podcast. And uh, we welcome them all into our elite group called the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And we have some new members to introduce. So thank you and welcome to the History of the World podcast Illuminati, Gary Lenz and 3d6.space. You're both members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and your contributions will help to maintain the standard of the podcast and make it even better. I did receive some emails this week. Um, I'm going to just brush over them. Um, One I received 
uh, from a gentleman called Nick Gassman, who's put, Hi Chris, my name is Nick, and I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts, not just history, but other topics too. Although I do love history, I think your podcast is great, and thanks for doing it. Much popular history content, books, TV, podcasts, tend to focus on the cultural icons such as Henry VIII, Rome and Greece, the French Revolution. They often tend to be viewed from a Western perspective as well, rather than necessarily understanding the perspective of the people at the time or the perspective of, say, modern-day Islam. Um, I'm up to episode 23 of your podcast, and it's very refreshing, filling in a lot of missing detail and taking an apparently neutral perspective. I find that what you are particularly good at is taking complex issues and making the timeline easy to understand. Not many people do that at all well. Um, he then goes on to share a few sort of links and books that he's particularly interested in. I really appreciate your message, Nick. Um, it's great that um, you have identified the ethos of the podcast. It really is just an education on history. It's not um, in any way meant to um, suggest what you should or shouldn't think. And um, I really do want to try and get away from this sort of westernised perspective on things, even though you do have to somewhat um, respect it in terms of, like, so let's say, sticking to the Greek names to make it um, yeah, make it much more accessible and interesting, and 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 to you know to those who are familiar with those names. So there is a degree of westernisation to the podcast, but I hope in terms of a uh, perspective I try and remain as neutral as possible but thanks for the email Nick if you are interested in uh, a little bit more in what makes me tick as a as a presenter of the podcast um, I was very kindly invited to do an interview with uh, Nick Barksdale of the study of antiquity in the middle ages YouTube channel and uh, he grilled me for about an hour on various topics and the video is now on YouTube I have posted the link on the History of the World podcast Facebook page so you can access it there. But if you do want to uh, grab the link from me, then just drop me a line if, you, if you're interested. It's on the Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages YouTube channel. I also received an email from a Stephen J. Mikowski, um, who um, wrote me an email. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, but he's just put, hello, Chris, forgive me, I'm, uh, but I'm a Johnny-come-lately to your podcast, having only been made aware of it via the interview recently posted on YouTube by the Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages. So I've started to listen from the beginning only a couple of days ago, but being a history nut since the age of 11, many, many decades ago, the whole evolution process piqued my curiosity as it has, albeit rarely. So there I started. A question once again that reared its ugly head and won't let me go. It is, if there were so many species evolving to where we are today, presumably on many levels and instances of earthly life, why is it that we don't see that around us now today? Um, very, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, look, you, you can look at other animals such as, uh, you know, elephants, for example. We only see a couple of them where we know that there were many species of elephant in the past. And it's just a case, I think, of Homo sapiens maybe, maybe were uh, the dominant human species and unfortunately uh, the other human species maybe met their match in Homo sapiens, Homo sapiens, whatever you prefer to call them, 
and uh, here we are today. I think maybe that's my feeling that's, uh, that we are the reason why we are the only species of human around at the moment because we put uh, we you know we put paid to all the other ones unfortunately but i may be wrong who knows but thanks for the email Stephen, and i hope you enjoy the podcast and just briefly some uh, history of the world podcast reviews on apple itunes uh, from mississippi uh, by a a a a a a a z a from the united states of america uh, put wonderful podcast thank you very much i'm not going to say your name again and uh, PLSU1234567 from the United States of America. I think someone's winding me up here, doesn't it? These names never used to be this bad. Um, but one of the best history podcasts. Chris is very well organised. He tells a very complete story of our history as a species on Earth. He covers multiple areas of the world and keeps it organised so that you can see the connections among different areas of the world and our common experience as humans. And uh, fantastic... Uh, writes Alan B from Australia puts well researched and thought out Chris gives multiple theories views and encourages the listener to form their own opinions thank you very much Alan B Uh, well um, there probably is more messages that I could be reading out Um, unfortunately there's too many to cram into a podcast episode I will endeavour to catch up with as many as possible going forward but if you did send me a message and I haven't read it out I do sincerely apologise. Next week on the podcast, we continue the story of the Achaemenid Empire. Don't forget to let me know what you thought of this episode. And until next week, stay safe, have a great week, and we'll see you again. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us. <laughs>